Hello and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host Magnus and what I do is use every eighth episode of this podcast to talk about Smallville. Now, about a year and a half ago, I began yammering about Smallville Phase 2. Because if you're so inclined, you could view the first three seasons of Smallville as Phase 1. And Smallville Phase 2 starts with the dreaded fourth season and then goes right on through to the end of the sainted seventh season. And today, I'm starting coverage of the sixth season, which is to say Smallville's shippiest season. By this point in the show's run, it'd be fair to say that the characters have all covered a lot of ground. In the first season, Clark's instincts and judgment were usually shown to be almost flawless. Yeah, he made an occasional misstep sometimes, but largely Clark was steered by his conscience during the first season of Smallville, and largely his conscience led him in the right direction. That began changing, starting with the second season. He sometimes made the wrong choice or a bad decision. Viewers were allowed to see Clark's struggles against his own fallibility. As a matter of fact, my view is his virtually flawless decision-making processes back in the first season kind of sort of lulled him into a false sense of security. And so because of that, and possibly because his world had begun changing around him, Clark was usually caught off guard by people, situations, and general life during the second season. During the mighty season three, Clark's judgment was as wonky as ever, but what changed was that others started suffering the consequences of his actions. If Clark screwed up during the mighty season three, the aftermath of his stupidity was real, lasting, and often harmful. If he fucked up at something or made the wrong call, he rarely got a second chance. He either got it right the first time or else he didn't get it right, really at all. And as his relationship with Alicia Baker shows, even when he got another chance, he still fucked up sometimes. The dreaded season four marked the beginning of Smallville phase two. And the idea that Al Goff and Miles Miller had was to lighten the mood of Smallville as a show. The mighty season three has got a lot going for it, y'all. But at the, at the same time, it also got pretty fucking dark in a lot of places. So part of the agenda for the dreaded season four was to brighten things up a little bit. But another issue was showing Clark's growing sense of independence. He made a lot of mistakes in the second season and he made more mistakes in the mighty third season. And then he had to live with the consequences of those decisions in the mighty third season. So in the dreaded season four, Clark had nowhere to go but up. But more than that, he was finally coming into a stage in life when he'd, he'd seen himself at his worst and at his best. He understood that his actions matter. And the fact is that he has to make decisions that literally nobody can help him with. For everything else I could say about the dreaded season four, Clark began to understand that his judgment is as fallible as anybody else's. But at the end of the day, He's the only one who can make the choices that he has to make. 
Getting into the fifth season, Clark's graduated from high school, and a lot of the moral certainties of his high school years are definitely behind him at this point. Clark learned in the fifth season that the bad guy isn't always going on a tear with superpowers and wrecking shop on everybody. Sometimes the bad guy has diplomatic immunity or teaches history classes in college. And sometimes the bad guy is the CEO of Luther Corp. <sighs> It'd be fair to say that Clark had a pretty hard time of it in season five. He decided to give up his powers back in Arrival, the fifth season premiere. And under the circumstances, his decision to forsake his powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men is totally understandable. I mean, the guy's been through a whole lot of bullshit, especially lately, and it had mostly been trouble that wouldn't have happened if not for the fact that he has powers. But what he ultimately discovers is that he needs his powers. And on top of that, the town of Smallville needs him to have his powers. Now, moving right along, in the episode uh, Exposed from the fifth season, Clark's major takeaway lesson is that no matter what life throws at him, they're still right and they're still wrong. Clark still has the same conscience that he had back in the first season, but in Exposed, Clark realizes that sometimes you can't win the way you want to win. So, perhaps starting to show a bit of Superman's wisdom. In the episode Exposed, Clark seizes upon the victories that he's able to win during that episode. He was at least able to exonerate Jack Jennings. He arranged for Mr. Lyon's arrest by Interpol, and he solidified his relationship with Lois by saving her from being smuggled off in a human trafficking ring. Clark didn't allow himself to be overwhelmed by Jack's corruption or by Mr. Lyon getting away with tons of other crimes. Sometimes in life, all you can manage are the small victories. Back in season one, the events of Exposed would have destroyed Clark. But they didn't in season five. Now, another thing that the fifth season makes crystal clear is that Clark puts a premium on friends, family, love, and loyalty. Those are the values that it sustained him in Exposed as an episode. But there is a dark side to that. Clark's still very attached to his old life with Jonathan and Martha living on the farm together. Clark may have physically grown up, but it's reasonable to argue that he hasn't truly become an adult yet. Now, Brainiac tried to drive a wedge between Clark and mankind during the episodes Splinter and Solitude, but each time Brainiac was defeated because Clark wouldn't give up on for lack of a better way of putting it, his human life. And his human life wouldn't give up on him. Now, as I say, back in the fifth season, that was a positive development in and of itself. But it hinted at a deeper character flaw that Clark's going to spend the rest of the series struggling through. Circling back to consequences, though, reckoning from the fifth season was Smallville's 100th episode, and a lot of interesting things were set down. For one thing, Jonathan Kent is dead. For two things, Jonathan Kent is dead, and the bad news is it's all Clark's fault. 
Clark's already too attached to his childhood on the farm, but now he realizes that he's responsible for Jonathan's death. His piss-poor decision-making saved Lana in Reckoning, and there's no denying that, but saving her came at the expense of Jonathan Kent's life. Now, Jonathan had always been Clark's hero. Jonathan was the guy that Clark wanted to be. You could argue that Jonathan was always Clark's true best friend. More than Pete, more even than Lex, Clark practically worshipped the ground that Jonathan walked on. But Jonathan's dead now, and it's all Clark's fault. So, understandably, Clark was in a pretty dark place for the remainder of the fifth season, and he's going to be a little bit more well-adjusted here in the sixth season, but that doesn't mean that he's okay. In fact, it's going to be a long time before you can really say that he is okay. But he's spending a lot of time grappling with how much he hates his alien heritage and how much he hates his powers. Clark's secrets cause so much pain and suffering for people that it kind of makes sense that he's almost going through a depression because of what life's thrown at him or thrown at him lately in season five. And it's going to be I would say a, a fairly long time before we see Clark find a way to truly accept his powers and his alien heritage. And we should say that in Clark's mind, having superpowers is one problem. Being an alien is a separate problem. They're related to each other, but they're still separate problems from one another. In Clark's mind, his powers cause pain for other people, especially the people that he cares about. And also in his mind, his alien heritage causes pain for him personally. They're two separate problems, and so they have to be resolved separately. And they will get resolved. But not for a pretty long time. Now, the fifth season wound up with Brainiac coming back, enabling Zod to take possession of Lex, and Clark getting banished to the Phantom Zone. Clark knows that he has to save the world, but first, he has to escape the zone. And that's what we'll be talking about today. Now, last time I finished up my comments with episode 22, Vessel. And you know what that means. It's time for a break. Be right back to resume the discussion about Smallville, season six, beginning with episode one, Zod, after these messages. Magnus here. At Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. But mostly it's comics. And starting in February 2018, I'm launching a mega series that's all about Batman comics. And right now, you're probably saying, 
Spit Magnus, Spit Magnus. Does this have anything to do with that new Batman movie that may or may not be coming soon? Why, yes. Yes, it does. I plan to talk about a crapload of Batman comics, and I want you riding along in the Batmobile with me. This is the Caped Crusades, a 24-part mega-series all about Batman comics that have meant a lot to me for a lot of years now. And as I work through all of that, I'll also talk about what I personally consider to be Batman's series finale. All that and more is part of the Caped Crusades, a 24-part Trennis Magnus Punches Reality mega-series. Be there in February 2018. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality can be found at twotruefreaks.com as well as iTunes. Season 6, episode number 1, entitled Zod. This season is by far the most ship-oriented season of Smallville's entire run. No kidding, the, this entire season rises and falls on various ships. You've got Lex and Lana, Clark and Lana, Jimmy and Chloe, Clark and Chloe, Clark and Lois... Ollie and Lois, arguably Martha and Lionel, I mean, the, the list just goes on. It affects everything this season. Now, I don't see this as a bad thing. Comic books are more than just a medium for telling stories. As much as anything, they're also a literary form, basically a genre unto themselves. And there's a soap opera dimension to comics where characters date each other, they fall in love, they break up, they get married, or whatever else. And more than any other season in this show's entire run, season six embraces this aspect of Smallville's comic book origins. You see, Al Goff and Miles Miller originally intended Smallville to end with the fifth season. And for a lot of years there, a lot of Smallville critics were pretty much on that same wavelength. The prevailing opinion among the naysayers is that Smallville should have closed up shop back in the fifth season or so. And I mean, you know, yeah, now and now and then you get you get people who just can't seem to get their heads out of Richard Donner's asshole who say the show should have ended back in the dreaded fourth season because that's when Clark chucked the crystal all across the Arctic wastes, just like he did in Superman the fucking movie, which is the only incarnation of Superman they really know about or are invested in. But by and large, as I say, the, 
The consensus among most of the haters is that Smallville should have ended during the fifth season. But it seems like the network had other ideas. And ultimately, that's their decision to make. Goff and Miller can express an opinion, but ultimately the network is going to make their own decision about the future, or lack thereof, of any TV show. The showrunners, which is to say Goff and Miller in this case, can either get on board with that, or they can take the shit and get out. What they cannot do is tell the network that it's time for the show to end. So, number one, it's completely illogical to burn Goff and Miller in effigy just because they somehow dragged the show out too long. Because they didn't. They just did what they were told. And number two, the fanboy conniptions that some people have about Smallville going beyond the fifth season is usually a, a kind of obvious dead giveaway that they have no idea how business is done in the entertainment industry. So, the way that it looks to me, Goff and Miller came in with five seasons of Smallville in mind and a, a basic idea of Smallville's backstory. You know, how the seasons are, are going to play out in the big picture and then things, how things are supposed to end in the fifth season, assuming they can make it that far, so on and so forth. So that after the fifth season... Goff and Miller had to make a lot of stuff up. There's nothing definitive that I can point to as far as evidence for all this. It's just a hunch on my part, but for me, okay, this is just my opinion. In terms of what I think works, it's interesting that after the fifth season, we don't have as many extended journeys into the past. These prolonged flashbacks, these plots and conflicts that revolve heavily on the established characters and whatnot, after the fifth season. There's not going to be another Zero, or Lineage, or Memoria in Smallville's future. And even when we do get flashbacks into the characters' lives before the, pri uh, the pilot episode... <sighs> it's hard to describe, but... Basically, they mostly feel slightly artificial somehow. Tacked on. And the reason for that is because they are tacked on. They had to be created out of whole cloth to serve that season's immediate dramatic needs. For example, there's an episode coming soon that heavily relates to Lex's school days at Excelsior Prep. That doesn't feel quite as much of a piece with Smallville's history as, say, Memoria. And there's a reason for that. It's because this flashback that I'm talking about to Excelsior Prep, that specific story didn't exist until probably sometime in the summer of 2006. It wasn't part of the original idea that Goff and Miller had coming into this thing. Again, Season 6 is where we completely break away from Goff and Miller's original story ideas for Smallville. And, at least partially because of that, Season 6 is where a lot of the more extreme fantasy and comic book concepts of Smallville go into overdrive. Now, this exists on two levels. Number one, 
the first five seasons carefully avoided too much Superman mythos and too much Superman iconography. Yes, the lead character's name is Clark Kent, but overt references to the Superman universe, they're just not all that prevalent in the, in the first five seasons of this show. During seasons one through five, Smallville primarily relied on its own mythos to tell stories and develop characters. Season six is where all that begins changing. Beginning in season six, we start seeing very familiar Superman symbols and mythos. Now, it'll become progressively stronger through the show's run, but season six is the major turning point in all that. But it's not just mythos that season six rounds a corner. Which leads me to number two. There are things that season five began introducing, but only really started coming home to roost here in season six. I speak of secret identities, more refugees from Krypton, more non-Superman comic book characters, the first glimpses of the Superman symbol, and things like that. But these aren't the only comic booky aspects of the sixth season. Nope. Not even close. A big part of season six comes down to visuals, cinematography, aesthetics, and so forth. Smallville's officially in its visual prime, starting right now, here in season six. Now, season seven may look slightly better, but it's a toss-up in a lot of ways. But any way you look at it, season six looks like a comic book in so many ways. For example, at the beginning of the episode titled Zod, Lana and Zod in Lex's body have a scene at the top of the Luther Court building while Metropolis falls apart in the background. It looks like it could have been taken from any number of comic books that you've ever read. For another thing, there's a scene with Martha in the fortress. Now, I could be mistaken in this, but I don't think I am. I think this is the only time that Martha ever goes to the fortress during the entire run of this show. And there she's, she has a, a kind of sad scene with the AI Jarrell. But for me, I, I just I can't take my eyes off the damn thing because the visuals and the colors and everything else are just gorgeous to look at. The Fortress is one of the most beautiful sets that Smallville ever had to work with, and it shoots like nobody's business. Most scenes in the Fortress are just eye candy, pure and simple. I love this stuff. Love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. Anyway, more comic book stuff comes in the form of Green Arrow. Now, this isn't the first time that Smallville's given us a costumed character. Nope. That distinction goes to the Angel of Vengeance uh, from back in Season 5, but that was a guest appearance. One and done. This is different, and arguably more important because of the role the Green Arrow was meant to play in Season 6. More on that when I get there, though. For those keeping track at home, Bart Allen, Victor Stone, and Arthur Curry don't really count in all of this because... None of them really had a secret 
identity whereupon they wore costumes or anything like that. Green Arrow was the first real attempt at doing a costumed comic book character and sticking to it. Still, we haven't seen the last of Bart, Victor, or Arthur, said Magnus cryptically. That's a good word, isn't it? Cryptically. Anyway, while I'm talking about costumes, though, Green Arrow's outfit was the subject of a lot of griping and complaining when Season 6 got underway. And, admittedly, it is kind of a departure from Green Arrow's comic book outfit, as it was circa 2006. Now, full disclosure, I've never given two fucks about Green Arrow. To me, he was always just a third-string Batman copycat. Simple as that. So, keep that in mind when I say that the changes to his costume just don't bother me. Smallville's becoming more and more fantasy-oriented with each passing season. Concepts and characters that never never would have even been considered back in the first season are fast becoming part of the everyday fabric of this show's reality. And in a strictly realistic world, where form follows function, someone who does what Green Arrow does probably is going to use a lot of military surplus gear and things like that. But that's not the Smallville universe anymore, and it hasn't been for a long time by the time Season 6 starts up. In this brave, new, fantastic world of Smallville, it's starting to become more and more common for people to have amazing superpowers, and yes, to wear costumes. Now, on that basis, Green Arrow's costume, I think, is a pretty good compromise. It's got just enough impossibly high-tech gadgets and just enough comic book panache mixed in with a sort of motorcycle leather type of look to make something that I think is viable for where Smallville is from a stylistic standpoint right now. It's fantastic and comic booky enough to match Smallville's changing tone but still maintains the functional credibility that you can see why Oliver Queen would want to wear something like this. So all around, I'm prepared to call it a pretty good compromise. And again, I couldn't care less about Green Arrow, so just take my remarks for whatever you think they're worth. Now, I mentioned the shift in tone just a while ago. There's really no denying that the series has become more and more fantastic as time's gone by. Partly that's because Goff and Miller wanted to constantly freshen up the show. Or that's my guess, anyway. They started off Smallville's pilot episode with a relatively down-to-earth tone. Each subsequent season's moved just a little further away from that tone, so that by the sixth season, the more fantasy-based aspects to... uh, aspects of the show are very close to impossible to deny. And as I say, I think Goff and Miller did that intentionally to constantly keep the show fresh and engaging for longtime viewers. But I can sort of no-prize the shift in tone from an in-universe standpoint. Like I say, 
the shift in tone is undeniable, but it's still a change. So you'd expect the characters to react to that, and indeed they do. In season one, most of the stories were fairly grounded. Don't know as I'd go so far as to call them realistic as such, but they're grounded. In the first few minutes of Smallville's pilot, we see what looks basically like a real world. Flash forward to Clark's freshman year of high school in the pilot episode, and some people, not many, but some people are starting to notice some pretty odd things. People with strange powers and whatnot. It's not universally known yet, but what was once Smallville's dirty little secret is now starting to become more and more widely known. And the thing is that people are becoming more and more accustomed to it all the time. It's starting to become fairly commonplace for the weird shit that happens in or else originates from the town of Smallville. To put it all out on Front Street, Clark's arrival on Earth has affected something. Once upon a time, people with powers were either incredibly rare or else non-existent. After his arrival, though, it's becoming increasingly a more typical occurrence. Clark's presence on Earth has affected the balance of things. Not only are superpowered beings starting to become more commonplace and more accepted as part of everyday life, but the moral underpinnings of the world are starting to shift as well. The shift in tone that the show's undergoing is accompanied by the nature of reality shifting and changing in the Smallville universe as well. And people? This has some comic book precedent to it, believe it or not. In Justice League of America, Volume 1, Number 153, cover dated April 1978, members of the Justice League wind up on Earth Prime. It suggested that Superman's arrival on Earth 1 as a baby is what gave rise to the other superpowered characters in the DC Universe. Moreover, though, that process changed the nature of reality for Earth 1. It simply doesn't have, I guess to be uh, specific, it just doesn't have the same kind of problems and politics that Earth Prime has, which is basically our real world. Earth Prime has complicated geopolitics, morality with plenty of shades of gray, corrupt politicians, and other things like that. Earth One, though, seems to have a very simple black and white type of social morality. Yes, Earth-1 has criminals, but for all intents and purposes, they may as well wear black cowboy hats. To put it another way, the nature of reality, the underpinnings of science, and arguably the Earth-1 universe's entire moral psyche begin shifting and changing to accommodate the presence of superhumans in general, and Superman in particular. And this is in the comics. Now, long-time listeners of this show have heard me call the pre-crisis DC Universe a sort of science fiction fairy tale sort of universe, and this is a big reason for why. Justice League of America, number 153 from 1978, posits that Earth-1 gradually adapted to the point where 
it could support the reality of superhumans. Obviously, then, the story in Justice League of America, number 153, turns on Earth Prime's inability to instantly adjust to the presence of the entire fucking Justice League, who appears out of nowhere, and then that causes all kinds of problems for Earth Prime. But that's really neither here nor there in terms of goings-on with Season 6 of Smallville. I bring all of this up just to say that the same kind of cosmic evolution seems to be affecting the Smallville universe. What we saw in Smallville's pilot episode is a reality comparable to Earth Prime. What the Smallville universe is becoming, though, resembles Earth 1 more and more all the time. Now, speaking of comic books and for just a moment to go back to super familiar Superman visuals, there's also a major piece of Superman iconography introduced in the episode Zod, and it plays a major role in this episode's escalating plot as well as the resolution. Also, and again, speaking of the comics, we also meet a pair of new characters this season. The first is Jimmy Olsen, who gets introduced pretty early on in the Zod episode as a love interest for Chloe. This is significant because Jimmy's the first major love interest that Chloe's ever had on this show. Unless Clark counts. And whether anybody likes it or not, I don't think he should. Now yeah, there's a big controversy about Jimmy, and I'm going to deal with that later on. Much later on, in fact. But that's a couple of seasons away, so don't bother me with that bullshit right now. The point is, Jimmy introduces some new dynamics to the plot. He's a good, nice guy, and he's someone that Chloe could plausibly fall in love with. I can't quite shake the feeling, though, that part of the reason he was brought into the show was because Goffin Miller fundamentally needed another character involved in the stories who doesn't know Clark's secret. Don't believe me? Well, if you look at the Season 6 opening credits, you'll see seven cast members. One of those is Clark himself. Of the remaining six, three of them know Clark's secret. Of the remaining three, one of them's going to obtain information, or, or lacking that, some type of understanding, about Clark's secret by the end of the season. That leaves just two characters who aren't in on the secret. Yet. So, all at once, introducing a character who doesn't know Clark's secret makes more sense now, right? Anyway. I mentioned a pair of new characters that were introduced this season, but so far, I've only discussed Jimmy. That's because I'm waiting until later to deal a little bit more with Oliver Queen in greater detail. All in good time. For right now, though, we've got deeper themes and implications. As I said before, Martha has a scene with Jarrell in the fortress, and among other things, Jarrell thanks Martha for being such a good mother to Clark. And that's a kind of weird thing for Jarrell to say if he's the monster and the tyrant that Clark thinks he, uh, thinks he is. Again, it comes much later in the show, but we are eventually going to get a very good explanation for why Jarrell does what he does 
and says what he says. Still, we've got a lot to work with as it is. I said, back in my discussion about the dreaded season four, that Jarrell had a pretty authoritarian relationship with Clark. And, in fairness to Jarrell, things really would have gone just fine if Clark had just shut up and done what Jarrell had told him to do. And what exactly did Jarrell want Clark to do? Well, as I've said before, Jarrell wanted Clark to gather together the stones of knowledge, overthrow all world governments, and then set himself up as ruler of the planet. And this, not so he can be a brutal, repressive tyrant either. Instead, Jarrell wanted Clark to protect Earth from Zod and Brainiac. Jarrell knew that Brainiac was out there and that sooner or later, he'd find his way to Earth. And when he did, the disciples of Zod, and Zod himself, wouldn't be far behind. The true th threat, though, came from Zod. Clark's job as Earth's ruler would have been to prepare himself and the world to resist Brainiac, Zod, and their disciples. That was the plan. But Clark didn't obey Jarrell, and right now we're seeing the results of all that. Now, yes, it's true that if Clark had done what Jarrell wanted him to do back in the second season, he probably wouldn't have ever become Superman, at least as we know him. Not the point. The point is that Jarrell didn't necessarily send Clark to Earth to become Superman. He sent him here first to save his life, and second, to protect the world from the ghosts and dregs of Krypton. But, after it was too late for Clark to follow Jarrell's instructions, you'll notice that Jarrell never tries to be such an authoritarian asshole with Clark anymore. True, the damage is done to their relationship by this stage in the game, but fact is, Jarrell stopped trying to push Clark after commencement which is to say the finale of the dreaded season four. And starting here with the episode Zod, we see a very different side of Jarrell. All right, send me back. Everything you have done for Kal-El, you have my deepest gratitude. I could not have wished for a brighter light to guide my son. Farewell, Martha Kent. Gets weirder, though. While trapped in the Phantom Zone, Clark bumps into Riot, a refugee from Krypton, and a former assistant to Jarrell. She's literally nothing but positive things to say about Jarrell. The way that Raya tells it, Jarrell could have escaped Krypton's destruction by hiding in the Phantom Zone, but he stayed on Krypton until it went kerplunk, trying like hell to save his world. Now, nobility, self-sacrifice, compassion, these are not the traits that Clark associates with Jarrell. This is another early indicator that there's more to Jarrell than we've seen so far. This all obviously comes as a pretty big shock to Clark, though. Now, to be fair to Clark, he's still going through some bullshit of his own. 
The fortress is dead. Everything's changing. Dad's gone. I can't talk to Lex. Lana's. I don't know where to go from here. I didn't either when I was your age. Just follow your heart. And you'll always do the right thing. Maybe some Kryptonians believe the same thing. Jarrell sacrificed himself trying to save Krypton. Raya died saving me. Every world needs its heroes, Clark. They inspire us to be better than we are. And they protect us from the darkness that's just around the corner. In a lot of ways, this outlines what Clark's going to struggle with for a good bit of the rest of this show's run. It's going to be articulated better in future episodes, but we finally arrived at Clark Kent's main problem. Specifically, he's become way too attached to certain things and to certain people. Or maybe fixated. Maybe that's the better way to put it. But the fact is, as I've said before, Clark has lived the dream on the Kent farm. He had loving parents, supportive friends, and a possible relationship with Lana Lang. But Jonathan died. Pete Ross got run out of town. His friendship with Lex is smithereens. And in general, Clark's life is in major upheaval right now. Clark doesn't understand that his old life was fine in its place, but it's time for him to grow and to move on. The problem is he's fundamentally unwilling to do that. And in some ways, who can blame him? But he still has a job to do. Not as a superhero, but as a young man to build his own life. And he's uncomfortable doing that right now. Add to this that everything that's gone wrong since Crusade back in the dreaded season four is basically Clark's fault for not listening to Jarrell, heeding his warnings, and then accepting his guidance. As I said before, back in the first season, coincidentally or not, Clark made all the right moves. Any action that Clark took, anything that Clark did, those things all ended up being right. It may have taken him a long time to figure out how to win, but ultimately, Clark did everything just about perfectly in the first season. And I think you could argue that it gave him a very false sense of security about his own decision-making processes. My view is that Clark had fallen under the delusion that anything that he did was right, because he did it. He first started getting bitten by that in the second season, but it's happened a lot of times since then. But the episode Zod is the first time Clark's faced the realization that his piss-poor decisions and his snap judgments damn near caused the destruction of the entire human race. Now, that's a lot for any 20-year-old to have to carry around with him. So, apart from bad judgment, there's guilt 
for Clark to work through. So, to summarize, Clark's struggling with too strong an attachment to his past. And at the same time, he's overwhelmed by guilt from his own bad judgment. And as I say, he's got totally justifiable reasons for these hang-ups. But at the end of the day, they're still hang-ups. Now, normally this is the time that Jonathan would give him a pep talk, but Jonathan's not around anymore. Clark not only has to move on, but this is the first time he's had to shake himself out of his funk all by himself. So, a fair amount of Clark's character arc through the sixth season is him internalizing all of those things. And he may or may not learn the right lessons from all this stuff. Now, we've seen Clark wrongly assume responsibility and chew on all different kinds of false guilt. So, on the one hand, these things may, they may seem like a retread of what we've seen before. The difference in this case is that for the first time, there's nothing irrational about Clark's guilt and his angst this time around. On various levels, it truly is Clark's fault that he didn't heed Jarrell's warnings, that he lost Lana, that Jonathan died, that Milton Fine got as far along with his evil scheme as he did, that the world was brought to the, to the edge of oblivion. All these things and more really and truly are sincerely Clark's fault. Had Clark been more ready to accept responsibility, it's easy to believe that things would have worked out differently. And probably better. But because Clark's made the choices that he did based on the prejudices that he believes in in life just to get by, a lot of shit got completely out of control in the fifth season. The shit hit the fan in the fifth season. Anyway, other stuff. <sighs> Not really sure what to make of Clark's battle with, with Zod here in the episode called Zod. In Vessel, from last season, Clark defeated Lex before Zod took full possession. Now, true, Lex, is, he wasn't anywhere near as accustomed to superpowers as Clark is. But either way, Clark took him down. Here, Zod appears to beat the absolute piss out of Clark, but what we eventually realize is that Clark is fighting smarter, not harder. He never even tries to put up a fight. When he's not getting the shit knocked out of him, he's constantly searching for tactical and psychological advantages. Now, honestly, I don't think that this is a fight that Clark would have been prepared for back in the first or even the second seasons of this show. Back then, he had a way of trying to press a physical advantage when he was up against someone with power to match his own. Not always, but it wasn't off the table. But fighting someone like Zod that way may very well have been suicide. So, instead, Clark waits for Zod to call a temporary truce and then demand Clark's loyalty. And that is when Clark springs the trap on him. You see, way too often, Superman gets picked on for solving problems with his fists. 
I really dig how Stephen DeKnight, the writer of this episode, showed Clark think his way out of a problem. Victory and Zod as an episode comes not from superior fighting skills, but from outthinking your opponent. Lex isn't the enemy. Zod is. Clark had to find a way to dispatch Zod without harming Lex. Everybody wanted Clark to kill Lex, but Clark knew that wasn't the way. He held out for a non-lethal alternative, and in the end, he found one. Clark was able to separate Zod and send his sorry ass back to the Phantom Zone. Clark's plan paid off. What this tells us is, yes, Clark has his problems. He's not the man that he should be. No questions there, but he's capable of doing the right thing and seizing tactical advantages when they come his way. Clark's becoming more and more of a hero all the time. Clark rose and fell on the principle that he was not going to take Lex's life, and he won. Now, this next is trivia, and apropos of exactly nothing, but Oracle back in Season 5 ended with a to-be-continued notice. That led into Vessel, which also ended with a to-be-continued notice. Vessel led into Zod, which ended directly with credits rolling. That makes Oracle, Vessel, and Zod the only official three-part story in this show's entire history. More trivia. This episode, Zod. This is the first time we've seen the Superman symbol in the entire show. Now, there have been references and allusions to it in previous seasons, but it was never shown. But we see it here. And this version of the symbol is loosely modeled on the Superman Returns version. Now, I assume that decision comes from higher up and wasn't necessarily what Goff and Miller wanted. But here it is, nevertheless. Still, there, there are some tiny design variations between the symbol that is seen here in Zod versus the Superman Returns emblem. They amount to small details, but there you have it. And because this is an audio medium, it's not really possible for me to show you the differences, but there are a few differences. Take my word for it. Still more trivia. There's a really cool shot of a satellite in orbit as it's moving around through space, and it's swiped directly from Batman and Robin. It's a good shot. The effects are solid, but it was still swiped. Sadly, we haven't seen the, lo the last of Smallville borrowing footage from movies. Even Batman movies, for that measure. Anyway, in a nice little bit of continuity, while in the Phantom Zone, Clark's attacked by Namek and Aether from the fifth season premiere, Arrival. And speaking of continuity, the episode ends with a Phantom Zone escapee. Clark's fiery return to Earth showed that he wasn't the only one who escaped the Phantom Zone, but the final moments of Zod as an episode end with the sight of a Phantom ru uh, running around and charging at the camera. 
It's significant in this case because this particular Phantom goes on to become a pretty important character later on. I'm calling your attention to it right now because this is going somewhere. Anyway. So, this is a fun and enjoyable episode in what I think is a pretty underrated season. As season premieres go, it's one of the best in Smallville's entire history, and at this point, that's saying something. Anyway. Sneeze. Episode 2. Clark comes down with the sniffles. And he develops super breath. Meanwhile, the mysterious Oliver Queen has Lex kidnapped. Dun-dun-dun! In general, Smallville's not known for being a humorous show. It's got a fairly serious story to tell, and by and large, Smallville errs on the side of telling it seriously. Lois is one of the more comedic characters on the show, sure, but mostly Goff and Miller try to keep it serious, which is one major reason why Sneeze is such a departure from what's come before. Sneeze has more humor in it than most other episodes of the show that I can think of, but the quick summary for all this is that between Zod and the beginning of Sneeze, Clark's been super-speeding around Metropolis and secretly helping the construction and repair crews in Metropolis clean up after all of Zod's devastation. Now, this insane amount of exertion combined with Clark potentially picking up a minor bug while he was stranded in the Phantom Zone, results in Clark coming down with a fairly common cold. During his illness, Clark develops super breath. Or, really, it's that he realizes that, he has super, that, that he's had super breath all along. You either buy that, or you don't. Now... It's not a major spoiler to say that we don't see too much more of Super Breath in the rest of this series. It seems like it averages out to, to appearing about once per season. And once more in Season 6 to a very good effect, but otherwise this isn't a major weapon in Clark's arsenal. Anyway, as I say... There are more humorous comments and one-liners at play in this episode than is typical of Smallville. For example... Hey, God, I never thought I'd utter these words, but you don't look so hot. I don't feel so hot. Gesundheit. I tried to warn you, I've come down with some sort of cold. And become a walking air cannon. Clark, let's get you out of here before we blow again. At least I was able to cover half my face at that time. This morning, I, I blew the barn door halfway across Lowell County. It almost hit Lois. Lois as in Lane? Now she's on a one-woman crusade to find an explanation. You know her, she won't stop digging until she hits China. Yeah, okay, I'll take care of Lois. Will you just take care of that cold? We have enough natural disasters around here without having to worry about Hurricane Clark looming off the coast. <gasps> no! Just kidding. Lex, it seems, has been abducted. He's been abducted? My God. Oh, does Clarky have the sniffles? It's just a little cold. It's not funny. I'm not kidding. Clark, with a sneeze like yours, that says a lot about your lung capacity. Now just take a really deep breath and blow it out as hard as you can. That's a steel door. It's not a birthday cake. I don't see anything else working. Come on. Let's see what you got. Huff, puff, and blow this door down. 
Still, what this episode is probably always going to be remembered for is the introduction of Oliver Queen, the second major new character of Season 6. Told you I'd come back to this. Goff and Miller erred on the side of caution by not putting Oliver into his Green Arrow costume right away. Instead, they wanted us to spend time with Oliver first and get to know him a little bit. In fact, the first impression Oliver makes with viewers isn't a very good one. He kidnaps Lex and somehow manages to get crosswise with Lionel. And that's an interesting way to make his introduction. The showrunners clearly wanted us to question Oliver, his motives, his methods, and his agenda. This isn't an accident. As I'll talk about more in a few episodes, Oliver's motivated by a very different worldview than Clark is. So, deeper themes and implications. Slim pickings this time. Mostly, what you see is what you get. But, there are a few nuggets here and there. I want to talk to this guy and see what he knows. When you escaped from the Kryptonian land of the lost, I bet you didn't think that you'd be rewarded by having to save Lex Luthor while battling a raging head cold, huh? Not exactly the goodbye gift I was expecting, no. I guess heroes don't get sick days. They also don't put the world in jeopardy on an annual basis. No hero poet. There it is, 515 Grant Street. Okay, let's get out of here. Chloe. This could be dangerous. Yeah, especially for you. I mean, you barely got here. You need to conserve your energy. <laughs> oh, God. Quick <laughs> hands. I'm getting good at that. Here's the thing. Clark's got no illusions about who's to blame for the coming of Namek, Aether, Brainiac, and Zod. Not to mention all the mayhem that's ensued since then. In fact, the havoc that was wreaked was so severe that news media have begun calling that day Dark Thursday. There's a nice little bit of in-universe world building. Events and catastrophes aren't just swept under the rug. People react to them and they live with the consequences. Those consequences are starting to haunt Clark. For the first time, he's beginning to understand that his actions or inactions, as the case may be, have consequences. He's taken it upon himself to help rescue workers and clean up crews after Dark Thursday. This is the only way that he can really make amends for what he's done, or hasn't done, or for what he's caused, or, for, or, or however you want to look at it. And me, I see this as a, as a very Superman trait. How many times has a major disaster gone down in the comics, and then, once it's over, you see Superman swoop in, help repair buildings, clear streets, and things like that. Now, obviously Clark can't do that openly in Smallville, but he's still doing it. And this is a new thing for him. He didn't have powers immediately after dealing with Namek and Aether, so there's no way to know if he would have assisted as much with repairs back then. But he's doing it now. And that's what counts. Another big thing is that 
Lois takes her story about the barn door falling out of the sky to the Metropolis Inquisitor, who embellish it and then publish it. We haven't talked a whole lot about the Metropolis Inquisitor as I've gone through these retrospectives, but basically it's another neat little bit of universe building. We have supermarket tabloids here in the real world. So it only makes sense that Smallville would have some of their own. The difference, though, is that it might be tempting to put the Inquisitor on the same level as a supermarket tabloid. For one thing, I'm not sure the Inquisitor is actually published in a, in a tabloid format, but another thing in all that is that the Inquisitor is thought to be regarded as trashy, slightly sensationalistic bullshit. But it's been the home of real journalists before. I don't think we're supposed to completely relate the Inquisitor to things like the National Enquirer. But even there, the, the National Enquirer, uh, Enquirer, it's broken actual news stories before. John Edwards having an affair, the, the Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky thing, important evidence that was later used in the O.J. Simpson murder trial, Jesse Jackson's illegitimate child, and other things. So the comparison isn't really as bad as I would have first assumed. The point in all of this is we're supposed to regard the Inquisitor, I guess in a way that people believe that it's just less reputable as a news source than, say, the Daily Planet. But it's not precisely supermarket tabloid bullshit that you might first think. The reason I'm being such a pain in the ass about this is because Lois selling her first story there is big. It's her first entry into journalism and probably her first trial uh, by fire of journalistic ethics. Now, I should add here that ages and ages ago, I did an episode in the Big Book Report series with Chris Honeywell about the Big Book of Hoaxes, where I pretty much disparaged the entire profession of journalism because I truly believed that the, the pretense of objectivity in reporting the news is a complete fucking farce. There's no such thing as unbiased, objective news. It's a logical impossibility in most cases. Now, I can buy into the idea of a reputable news reporting and journalistic ethics and all the other shit in Smallville because this show's already dealing in fantasy to begin with. But I have zero respect for most real news outlets because they wear their biases and preferences on their sleeve. And guys, that's all news outlets, not just the two or three of them you listeners might hate. But anyway, going back to Lois, she's really excited about her job at the Inquisitor. And I really don't know why fans lambast this. Because when I was discussing Facade from the dreaded season four, I said, in fact, I'm moving on to the deeper themes and implications, in fact. Lois flat out says that she has no interest in writing or journalism. Lois. Lois Lane. She says that. 
Now, some people went a little hard on Holly Harold, the writer of Facade, for being a, a little too self-referential and ironic in that. What the haters seem to be missing, though, is that Lois herself doesn't see the contradiction in driving cross-country to investigate the truth of her cousin's murder. The only thing Lois forgot to do in that case is write down everything that happened. But otherwise, she's basically there. Lois Lane's arc for the next couple of seasons revolves around taking this college kid who doesn't think she has any interest or aptitude for journalism and show her that she's already there in most ways. She just needs to start putting the shit in writing, that's all. And of all people, Chloe's the perfect person to encourage Lois with investigative journalism. Not just because they're their cousins. Not just because of how much trouble Lois went to, and got in, for searching for the truth, but because her determination helped save Chloe's life. As far as Chloe knows, anyway. Still, what Lois herself underestimates, at least at first, is how quickly and how far she'd get sucked into the world of journalism. She plays it off, or tries to anyway, but you can tell she had the time of her life. So to put it another way, her actions defy her words in this very same episode. An interest in truth has driven Lois Lane, literally, ever since we were first introduced to her in this show back in the dreaded season four. The one thing Lois never did prior to this episode was write all the shit down. But otherwise, she already had the right instincts for news reporting. On top of all of that, and like I said before, it's self-evident that Lois had the time of her life when she was working at the Torch back in the dreaded season four. Selling a news story to the Inquisitor is a logical thing for her to do. It's also logical that she wouldn't necessarily pursue journalism straight away. She needed more time to get there than Chloe did. Of course, this is ultimately going to work to create a problem with Smallville's narrative. Now, it's less apparent here in Sneeze, but it'll become a more important issue as time goes by. And since it's not really spoiler stuff exactly, I'll just go ahead and discuss it here. Chloe Sullivan was created to serve as a kind of, sort of, proto-Lois Lane in Smallville as a TV show. Goff and Miller needed someone to push the narrative along independently of Clark. Plus, during the first season, Chloe's function is to be a kind of surrogate for the audience. She's asking all the questions that the viewers are supposed to be asking. So, it's logical to make a character like this a reporter. And so, that's been Chloe's primary role in the show from the start. So far, so good. The problem comes when you integrate Lois into the same narrative as a Lois Lane prototype. You essentially have two characters with fairly similar points of view doing fairly similar jobs. Ultimately, that's going to work to undermine one character or the other. And let's face it, Chloe is the expendable one here. The more enmeshed in the world of journalism that Lois becomes, the more Chloe's threatened. Chloe's 
one saving grace as a character at this point is that she knows Clark's secrets. And so she can bring a dimension to any episode's themes, co uh, conflicts, and plot resolution that Lois just can't right now. But I think it'd be fair to say that Goff and Miller found themselves between a rock and a hard place. Allison Mack was a fan favorite, but Lois Lane is ultimately the one with the destiny to fulfill. Lois can't truly achieve whatever's a, whatever is ahead for her, while Chloe does the same things that she's doing. Yes, many things distinguish Chloe from Lois's characters, but what they can bring to the show in terms of just sheer plot mechanics are starting to become very similar. Too similar. Almost redundant. And if Chloe's made obsolete by Lois... Well, as I say, Lois isn't the expendable one here. This dichotomy served to create tension because the logical decision would have been to kill Chloe off. Yes, she'd been acquired by DC Comics since the show premiered, but Goff and Miller were still the captains of her destiny insofar as this TV show is concerned. They could have killed her off at any time, for any reason, or for no reason, and not had to justify the decision to anybody. The fan base's realization of Chloe's redundancy helped enhance the suspense and the tension that any time that she was faced with mortal peril. Because when you come right down to it, Chloe isn't guaranteed anything in the future of Superman, still. I think you could fairly say that ultimately, Goff, Miller, and other crew members found very creative and totally valid ways of protecting Chloe and preserving her as unique on this series while still positioning Lois to fulfill her own destiny. I shall not go into it more than that here because that would be spoiler territory. But what I'm saying is that sometimes when you do any truly creative endeavor, the story and the characters go in directions that you didn't originally plan. Now, maybe you have other newer and better ideas that you can go along with. Maybe a cast member brings so much more to their character than you ever dreamed in your wildest imagination. Or, or you, you later stumble upon a new type of relationship that you can create and add more drama to the story. Whatever else may happen. My point is that because of unforeseen and unforeseeable stuff like that, you have to give yourself enough flexibility to adapt the material as you go along while still protecting the core integrity of your original story idea. It's not always easy to do. And there are times when Smallville struggled with that just like any other show. But their batting average is better than anybody seems willing to acknowledge, especially when it comes to handling Chloe and Lois as they become more and more similar to one another. Still, remember I said all of this because it's going to become more and more prominent in the future. But that's basically it for Sneeze, I think. And it's also probably going to be a pretty good time for a break. 
Be right back after these messages. dramatic reading. Sorry, I ain't sorry. Sorry, I ain't sorry. I ain't sorry. He trying to roll me up. I ain't picking up. Headed to the club. I ain't thinking about you. Me and my ladies sip dissy cups. I don't give a fuck chucking my deuces up. Suck on my balls, paws. I had enough. I ain't thinking about you. Middle fingers up. Put them hands high. Wave it in his face. Tell him boy bye. Now you want to say you're sorry. Now you want to call me crying. Now you got to see me wild. Now I'm the one that's lying. And I don't feel bad about it. It's exactly what you get. Me and my baby, we gone be all right. I see them boppers in the corner. They sneaking out the back door. He only want me when I'm not there. He better call Becky with the good hair. He better call Becky with the good hair. I'm back now and continuing my retrospective of season six. Smallville's shippiest season. So, episode three, Wither. The back of the trading card summary here is that Clark discovers that someone's escaped from the Phantom Zone, so he's got to track her down and take her out. I don't remember Wither being a particularly well-received episode. Now, keep in mind that I lived in, in, in kind of a bubble through most of Smallville's run, surrounded as I was by Smallville haters. So the fact that I don't remember people enjoying Wither really may not mean a whole lot. Still, Wither somewhat continues what Sneeze started in setting up a, just a slightly more humorous approach to the material. The stakes in most of Season 6 are about as serious as anything the characters have ever dealt with before, but Goff and Miller seem to be making conscious efforts to avoid letting things get too dark and dreary. 
And so the result of this is episodes that have at least as much peril as anything in the, uh, the show's history up to this point, but the characters now tend to make just a few more wisecracks in the slow points, you know? Breaks up the seriousness of things just a little bit. And considering how dark the Mighty Season 3 was, how melodramatic the dreaded Season 4 was, and how somber Season 5 was, it's perfectly logical that the writers and showrunners wanted Season 6 to show maybe just a little bit more of the sunny side of life. Of course, that still says something about the characters. Now, I don't remember anybody, except maybe Chloe, joking too much about meteor freaks in the first season. But, in keeping with the shift that Smallville's taken lately toward a more fantasy-oriented approach to things, subjects like aliens, spaceships, meteor rocks, super-powered mutants, and other things are starting to become just more a part of everyday life. The characters being all glib and jokey about that stuff says something about how normal those sorts of things are starting to become. The shippiest season. I did mention this is Smallville's shippiest season, right? If I didn't, This is the shippiest season in Smallville's entire history. And one of them gets started right here in Wither. Lois and Oliver's meeting is comic gold. Again, this relates to the lighter, more humorous, and just more fun approach that Goff, Miller, and the band of merry men in the writer's room seem to want to make things this season. It helps, though, that First, Lois is very well known for putting her foot in her mouth, and second, that Erica Durant and Justin Hartley have very good chemistry with each other. So, of course their first meeting is going to be incredibly embarrassing for Lois. How else was it ever going to go? And, since we're talking about chippy stuff, I was never real big on Lois and Ollie. You know? Don't get me wrong. I enjoy what there is of it, since I don't think it's much of a spoiler to say that Lois doesn't end up with Oliver. But I guess I'm just saying that I could take or leave their relationship. But at the same time, like I said, you can't deny that Erica Durant and Justin Hartley don't play incredibly well off each other. Other stuff. Deeper themes and implications. We all have our own ways of moving on, whether it's about growing up or just surviving. Mom, I've lost Lana, Dad, Jarrell. You don't see me as a different person. Well, in a lot of ways I do, Clark. All those things have shaped the person you are now. And the person you'll become. Clark again repeats how much he's lost as compared to where things were back in, say, the second season. Jonathan, Lana, Jarrell, Pete, and others. Now, on the one hand, this may seem a little heavy-handed. I mean, 
He talked about this same stuff at the end of the episode Zod, remember? But, on the other hand, keep in mind this show aired once per week, and viewers might not remember Clark's journey up to now. Or maybe they're Smallville noobs and have to be brought up to speed. So, Clark mentioning all of that bullshit to Martha by itself really isn't anything new. But it's still useful, first, in reinforcing the lessons that Clark's beginning to learn from previous seasons. It also brings new viewers up to speed on Clark's main hang-ups and shortcomings. But like I said, nothing new. What is new is Martha admitting that Clark's experiences have affected the way that she sees him. And that's an interesting character arc to consider. Martha started the pilot not even knowing that her adopted son is impervious to pretty much all physical harm. By the time that credits rolled for Vessel in the fifth season, she'd seen her son get poisoned by green kryptonite, seduced by red kryptonite, suckered into marriage, battle Jarrell, defeat supervillains, knock boots with Lana, lose his best friend when Pete Ross got run out of Smallville, and things like that. Clark's handled some of those things gracefully, but failed miserably at others. How could that not affect the way that she sees her son? Clark's not her little boy anymore. He's a young man who's had some victories, had some defeats, and is facing a very uncertain future. There is a character arc there, and it's a pretty fascinating one. Moving on to other things, though, as I've said, this is definitely Smallville's shippiest season, so I guess it's fitting that Clark spends the first couple of episodes this season maybe not pining for Chloe exactly, but kind of hoping for something. And this is a change of pace, yeah, but at the same time, it's not like it came out of nowhere, and for that matter, it's not like it's not going somewhere either. After years of a strictly platonic friendship, Chloe kissed Clark on the mouth back in Vessel. And, not to spoil anything, but that little plot point gets revisited later. A little bit. What I'm saying here is, there's justification for Clark to give Chloe another look. It wasn't something that was done just to stir up the Clark and Chloe shippers. Clark's reasoning here, it kind of makes sense. He's lost a lot lately, not least of which is Lana. So, he's given Chloe another look. And so, imagine his disappointment when he finds out that she's with Jimmy. I'm not saying it's logical. I'm just saying that it rings true. Other stuff. Gloria got the drop on Clark in the forest because he didn't completely understand her powers, but mostly because he wanted to give her a chance to turn over a new leaf, so to speak. But once he had a better understanding of her and her methods, the showdown in the greenhouse was pretty short-lived. Clark dispenses with her pretty quickly. Now, if this was season one, Clark would have been in for just a real pitched battle with Gloria. But here, it's over almost before it even really starts. Clark deals with her pretty quickly. Now, to be fair, 
A baddie like, like Gloria is pretty much Superman's coffee break, but she gives young Clark here more of a fight than that in Wither. And I wouldn't say that it's a royal ass-kicking, or at least not the kind of royal ass-kicking that would have been back in the first season. But it still happened. But when Clark has the showdown with her in the greenhouse, you need to remember, Clark's getting better at the superhero gig than he ever was before. And he's obviously feeling a lot more confident about fighting supervillains because this is the first time, at least that I can remember, where he's initiated just a little bit of pre-fight trash talk. <laughs> Who the hell are you? The gardener, get out. Kryptonians, always so hard and cold. You can't go home. I can't let you stay. What are we gonna do? We'll have to let nature decide. Still. Gloria proves that Wither isn't just a standalone episode. She's the opening salvo in this season's main story arc. She escaped from the Phantom Zone along with Clark. And Clark, indirectly and unintentionally, enabled that. Gloria's only on Earth. She was only able to kill people because of Clark. This is big. Anyway, another interesting tidbit is that Wither shows that Oliver and Lex went to school together. But some incredible bullshit must have happened between those two because they seriously don't appreciate one another's company. This is Chekhov's gun. Something big's going on here, and it's going to be revealed that'll, en that'll enrich both Lex and Oliver as characters. This isn't arbitrary drama at all. It's going somewhere. Anyway, Smallville shippiest season, and possibly this season's shippiest episode, but that's arguable. Still, Wither's an episode for love connections. It's implied at the top of the episode that Chloe and Jimmy are knocking boots. Not quite as much physical stuff between Oliver and Lois happens here, but their future relationship gets set up pretty nicely. There's a lot of flirting and repartee between those two. Again, I'm not real big on Lois and Oliver as a couple. It's not that it's hard to believe, because it isn't. Erica Durant and Justin Hartley play amazingly well together. As I've said before, though, I've just never really been all that big on them as a couple, you know, as an on-screen pairing, those two characters together. It just, just doesn't really work for me. I don't buy it. In other news, though, there's lots of physical stuff between Lex and Lana. The episode starts with Lana being uncertain about her relationship with Lex. It ends with Lex doinking Lana. and. That's not an incidental moment either. In fact, I dare say the majority of business between Lex and Lana for the rest of the series relates specifically to this moment. It's a big deal in ways obvious and not so obvious just yet. In terms of other things, in the not subtle at all file, we find the final moment of the episode where Clark throws a ball around in his barn all by himself, while everybody else is making a love connection of some kind, 
and you've got Clark sitting in alone in his barn in the dark throwing a ball around. You either see the symbolism and how that breaks from the theme or you don't. And if you don't, I can't help you. Episode 4, Arrow. This one's notable for being the first appearance of Oliver Queen as Green Arrow. Because of that, particular care and attention is paid to setting up Green Arrow's methods and his general badassery. There's a sequence where we see Green Arrow carefully and meticulously break into someone's mansion in order to rob them. Thanks to a tip-off from Lionel, Clark's able to intercept Green Arrow in the middle of the robbery. From there, what follows is a fairly plausible scenario where Clark's outwitted by a regular human. Green Arrow never gets the upper hand. What he does is find a vulnerable target in the room, and then uses that to distract Clark so that he can make his getaway. Still, it's an eye-opening experience for Oliver. Obviously, he's never encountered somebody anywhere near Clark's power level. His entire introduction to the show was predicated on kidnapping Lex because of the power that he showed back in Zod. So, obviously, Oliver knows that something like this is at least theoretically possible. But there's a difference between knowing people like Clark might actually exist and getting thrown across the room by one of them. By the time Oliver manages to get the hell out of Dodge, I think he's at a place in his psychology where he can appreciate the difference. Still, there's kind of an elephant in the room here. Conventional wisdom has it that Goff and Miller originally wanted this character to be Bruce Wayne and Batman, but the movie division told him to go fuck off. Because they couldn't use Batman, they used Oliver Queen and Green Arrow as a sort of Batman cipher instead. The thinking goes that yes, this character may be called Oliver and Green Arrow, but he's essentially Batman in terms of his characterization. In everything except name, this character is Batman. Honestly, I don't know if that's actually what Goffin Miller wanted. But Oliver does have a bit more in common with Bruce than what I understand Oliver to be like in the pre-Smallville Green Arrow comics. The way I see it though, and to me, this is all that matters. Goff and Miller brought Oliver Queen into the show to serve Clark's journey throughout this whole series. They modified and adapted Oliver as a character as much as necessary, not only to fit within Smallville's framework, but specifically to serve as Superman as a character. And that's fine by me. I very much like the idea of a DC universe designed to cater to Superman. The idea that all of these things ultimately work to serve Superman hits all my fanboy buttons. So whether Goff and Miller developed their own take on Green Arrow, or if they simply used him as a surrogate for Batman, to me it all works to the same. Green Arrow is on Smallville to work within Clark's journey. 
Nothing more, nothing less. But since we're on the subject of Batman, honestly, I'm sick to fuck a Batman. I think Bob Kane was an incredible asshole, but Batman fans make Bob Kane, Batman's dickhead creator, look like motherfucking Teresa. I'm sick of the hype and hysteria that surrounds Batman. I'm sick of Batman's cult-like fans posting aggravating bullshit on Facebook. I'm sick of Chris Nolan Batman fans having their little circle jerks over those three mediocre films. I'm just sick of Batman. And so because of that, I'm actually kind of glad, in a way, that Smallville never really brought Batman or Bruce into the show. I like that Smallville establishes its own version of the DC Universe that caters specifically to Superman. Batman's asshole fans are now so numerous and so fucking obnoxious that there's no way Bruce Wayne's presence in Smallville wouldn't have tainted the entire thing for me. Oliver Queen just doesn't have that baggage. So anyway, speaking of Oliver, another interesting thing in all this is that Lionel's the one who puts Clark on Green Arrow's trail. Clark visits Lionel so they can trade information, and Lionel speculates on who Green Arrow's next target's liable to be. Now, by itself, that's just a functional scene. It's designed to give Clark information that he needs so that he, he can be briefly put in Green Arrow's path. By itself, none of those things are important. What matters is that Lionel's now an accepted part of the team. To this day. People cry foul over this, but think about it for a minute. Lionel's been a major threat to all and sundry in the past, and so some people think that Chloe and the Kents were perhaps a bit too eager to welcome Lionel into the club. But but as I say, think about it. A lot of that was worked out back in the fifth season. Everybody was suspicious of Lionel. But he and Clark were thrown together, mostly by circumstance back in Mercy, and then by necessity in Vessel and Oracle back in season five. Lionel proved himself then, and he proves himself again right here in season six. He risked his life to save Chloe during Dark Thursday. He's gone out of his way to help Martha in both crisis situations and her professional life. He's openly thwarted Lex in order to protect the Kents, and he's done other things too. He's never tried to blackmail Clark into doing his bidding or somehow taken advantage of Clark in any way. Lionel's proven himself. Clark's right to place just a small amount of trust in Lionel by swapping information with him. Anyway, deeper themes and implications. There's an interesting scene in the in an elevator between Lana and Dr. Grohl. And this is the first time that we've ever seen Lana's out-and-out ruthlessness. She threatens Dr. Grohl, and it's pretty clear that this isn't the perfect pretty pink princess from the mighty third season anymore. We're starting to go into territory where Lana becomes, for the first time, a really interesting character for me. Not quite there yet, 
She's still got some twists and turns and other bullshit to go through first, but this is what makes everything that happens with Lana later on believable. It all starts here. Speaking of Lana, earlier in the episode, she had a very interesting conversation with Lionel. There's some continuity here with Season 5 where they talked about which of them was going to kill Lex. From there, they hash out a sort of agreement that they need to destroy the disc fragment that Lex recovered from Zod. The episode Zod. A lot of things are established here, but one of the most obvious and prominent is a reminder that Lex and Lionel aren't necessarily on the same team. Another thing, though, is that Lana isn't naive about what kind of man Lex Luthor is. She's willing to double-deal him and backstop him in the interest of protecting him from himself. Again, this is a big departure from the flawless princess of earlier seasons, but maybe most importantly of all, Lionel and Lana have a relationship of sorts now. As a TV show, Smallville introduced and then developed a lot of very interesting relationships, but one of the most powerful and unique of all of them is Lana and Lionel. That could be because Lionel's probably the only character in the show who sees Lana for what she truly is. Lionel never treats her like a sweet, innocent little schoolgirl. He talks to her like she's an equal. At times, a dangerous equal. He's got a pretty good idea of who he's dealing with, and his view of Lana is very different from Clark's view of her. Keep an eye on this. Something major just got established here that's going to affect both Lana and Lionel. And speaking of the disc fragment, basically what we're talking about here is a very dangerous piece of technology that Zod used while he possessed Lex's body. Now, at first, it's a little bit of a MacGuffin, like the Letters of Transit in Casablanca or the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. It's not really important unto itself, it's really just a tool used to motivate characters and drive the plot. I say that because Lex's agenda here is to use this black box to build some kind of way to defend the world the next time that some pissed-off Kryptonians come knocking. Lana encourages Lex to keep working on it. I'm mentioning this because it isn't small potatoes, but for once, this really is not leading in a very positive direction. I'll talk more about Lex's project with the black box later. And I expect I'm probably going to have fewer positive things to say, but I guess we'll have to wait and see. Moving on to other things, though. Later on, Clark and Ollie have a scene in the barn where they both get served some pretty hard truths. Ollie's methods are compared to Robin Hood. Rob the rich, give to the poor. Except Robin Hood didn't do that. Robin Hood stole from the tyrannical government and gave the money back to the people from whom the government had stolen it. But whatever. Common misconceptions aside, 
Ollie's attitude is that it's perfectly fine to steal from other people as long as he doesn't profit by it. He steals what was already stolen and then gives the proceeds to charity. Thing is, though, the two don't cancel each other out. At least, not in Clark's ledger. It doesn't matter that Ollie doesn't keep the money for himself. Clark's view is that thieves need to be punished, no matter what they do with their ill-gotten gains. The issue isn't what, what they do with what they steal. What matters, all that matters, is that they stole. Period. End of discussion. Oliver's noble for wanting to help people and to make a difference. His problem is he's going about it in all the wrong ways. There are ways of pursuing justice that don't require theft. I'll come back to that in a minute. What's really interesting, though, is that Oliver and Chloe have a very similar moral outlook on this. I mention it here because it's important to Chloe's character arcs in later seasons. It's a passing comment that she makes to Clark, but it speaks volumes because of how much it rings true of Chloe's character for the rest of this series. In Chloe's opinion, the end can justify the means. This is not a meaningless platitude on her part, and it doesn't just get swept under the rug here either. And in fact, it's not even a new thing. When Clark said that Jarrell had given him a dagger with which to kill Zod's vessel back in, um, back in Vessel, Chloe as much as said Clark should stick it in Lex's throat. Now, I say this to say that Chloe, being slightly ruthless, isn't exactly some recent innovation. Hell, you could argue it's been a crucial part of who she's always been. How many times was Chloe willing to violate someone's privacy or hack into government computer networks in order to get important information about some meteor freak or something like that? My point is that this isn't just throwaway dialogue for Chloe. It's representative of what she truly believes. And it's not something that's new and contrived for this episode either. It's a logical extrapolation of what she's always been. As to other means of pursuing justice, though, it's important to emphasize that we comic nerds know that Green Arrow is a superhero. So, the minute the announcement came that Green Arrow was coming to Smallville in Season 6, we all interpreted that, that to mean that a DC comic book uh, superhero character was joining the show. But so far, we've seen Oliver kidnap people, and we've seen Green... Uh, Green Arrow rob people. Strictly speaking, he's not a superhero. Green Arrow is not a crime fighter. Now, it's easy to, to project those things on him right away because we all know him from the comics, but that's not how he's presented here. Not at first, anyway. If anything, He's a criminal himself, no matter how he dresses, which methods he uses, or what his larger agenda is. Clark's ultimately the one who puts Green Arrow on the path to becoming a superhero. Oliver knows that he'll have to answer to Clark if he robs any more people, so what he learns is he's got to find new ways of saving the world and improving society. Well, he's already got the costume and the gear, so... 
why not become a crime fighter? As for Clark, people have bitched and complained about how he was basically dragged, kicking and screaming into becoming Superman, and how seemingly everybody but him wants him to become a superhero. For his part, Clark's got a different attitude about it. To his way of thinking, Clark Kent can either reveal to the world that Clark Kent has powers, or else Clark Kent has to stay hidden in the uh, shadows and be an anonymous hero. There is no middle ground here. The idea of becoming a costumed superhero with an alias is foreign to Clark's psychology. And I would say it's pretty foreign to the world that he lives in, too. I mean, look at the facts. Andrea Rojas took on the identity of the Angel of Vengeance so as to kill people in the fifth season. Oliver Queen became the Green Arrow so that he could rob people right here in the sixth season. Clark obviously doesn't view either of those characters as examples that he should emulate. But beyond that, Clark's got a very binary view of the situation, as I've said before, and it's, it, it's because he doesn't understand the value of a hero. It's, it's a powerful image because symbols connote ideals. Clark hasn't experienced that because he's never let himself experience it. But more than that, he's never really seen an example of it. The idea of becoming a costumed superhero isn't yet a viable career path in the world of Smallville. The other thing for Clark to consider is his passive heroism. What Chloe tells Clark, and all he tells Clark, is to start looking beyond his own backyard. Clark usually waits for trouble to find him, his family, or his friends, and only then does he take care of it. Oliver's point is that Clark never takes an active hand in seeking out problems and rescues to perform. For as serious as Clark takes his abilities, he treats rescuing and protecting people like a side job. It's not something that he's committed his life to doing. The issue here is that Oliver not only recognizes a shitload of potential in Clark, but also a complete lack of direction. And this feeds into other aspects of Clark's character arc. Clark doesn't know what he's doing, where he's going, how he's getting there, or, for that matter, who he's going with. But Oliver isn't telling Clark to put on a costume and become something like Green Arrow. He just tells Clark that waiting for trouble to come knocking isn't going to cut it anymore. Clark needs to seek problems out and solve them before they turn into a full-blown crisis. And keep in mind, Clark's ready to listen. The world damn near paid the price because Clark didn't take care of Milton Fine ahead of time back in the fifth season. That same season, Clark lost Jonathan because he was too focused on Lana and didn't pay attention to the bigger picture. Clark's ready to start taking advice on what he needs to do. Or at least he's more open-minded about hearing advice. If Oliver had shown up back in the fifth season, everything he tells Clark right here in Arrow as an episode would have fallen on willfully deaf ears. But 
The shape Clark's in right now, he realizes he doesn't have all the answers and is at least willing to consider an outsider's point of view. Season 6 is the start of Clark's pivot point. As ever, I will not get into spoiler territory here, but suffice it to say that Clark's got a lot of growing up to do. And I don't mean becoming a better superhero. What I'm talking about here is growing up and being an adult. That process starts right here in the sixth season. And I'm going to have more to say about that in the future. Speaking of the future, I'll be talking about Reunion, Fallout, Rage, and Static next time. But I think that just about does it for this time, so bye everybody. I will see you next week.